Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we're going to be starting off in verse 16. And Lord willing, if I can beat the clock, we're going to get through the the entire rest of the chapter. So I will read it, pray, and we will get going. So Acts chapter 16, verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation." She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market and placed them before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into the house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out." The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard they were Romans. And they came out and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Our Father, we are thankful for the word that you have given us this morning, the account of the work of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul and those who are your servants. We pray that 
we would be blessed by the reading and study of this word, and that those who are asking that question, uh, sirs, what must I do to be saved, that they would find the answer in the Lord Jesus Christ and find him to be a complete and perfect Savior. I pray you bless our time, give us understanding, and help us to walk in this word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So throughout our life, we ask a lot of questions. We start asking those questions at a very young age. We can hardly go an hour without James asking, what's that? What's that? And the answer usually is, it's the same thing that it was last time you asked what it was. It didn't, it didn't change over that course of time. Some of the questions we ask can be pretty trivial. Uh, oh, how's your day going so far? You know, we've all got that canned question ready to go, and we've all got the canned response. Oh, so far, so good, <laughs> right? Uh, some of those questions that we ask can be life-changing. One of the most life-changing questions that I ever asked was to my wife, Caroline, will you marry me? And the response changed the course of my life forever. Some questions that we ask or can be asked, are life or death. You you don't want to be asked, what's your blood type, and then get it wrong, because that usually means you need blood to survive. You don't want to be asked the question, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Anyone? (laughs) There's a few people. Life or death question. But there's, there are a few, if any, questions that are more important than the question that is asked in this passage. What must I do to be saved? There's a question that we all must ask, and the answer we find here in this word. So when we last, last left the Apostle Paul, he was in Philippi, and he had just, uh, Lydia had just been converted, and Uh, Her house, it seems, had become a house church. We catch up to them in verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. So Paul is continuing his ministry in Philippi. Uh, When Paul, as we see in his pattern, would arrive to a city, he would typically minister to the Jews first and then to the Greeks, and he would spend some time in the city building and establishing the church that he was in. Apparently, they had uh, likely spent some considerable time here in Philippi already. We don't know exactly how long, but it was long enough for a church to be established. They were following the pattern uh, that they had uh, followed before, going to that place of prayer, the place where they had first met Lydia. And along the way, along the way to the place of prayer, they encountered this slave girl. As we were going, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who is bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And we see here, we're reminded once again of the reality of demon possession. We see it in, uh, in a number of places, especially in the New Testament. And this isn't the first time that the Apostle Paul has come across demonic opposition in his journey. We need to remember that there are spiritual forces at work, and they're at work to hinder the mission of God here in this world. Throughout the New Testament, we see all kinds of demonic activity, and some of the most notable miracles of Jesus are the casting out of these demons. And I want to stop and and consider uh, demons and uh, their operations just for a minute, just to uh, clear up perhaps some misconceptions that we have. 
it's important to realize that demons are the fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion against God. Demons are constantly at work against God, though oftentimes we do not see them. When we see demons, uh, particularly in the New Testament, we can categorize their activity in these three, under these three actions. Now, it's not just these three things that they do, but typically when we encounter a demon, especially in the New Testament, we see them doing one of these three things. They oftentimes will act to replace God as the sole object of our worship. So demons, uh, what was Satan's great sin? He wanted to rise to the place of God and receive the worship that he received. Demons likewise seek out worship that is due to God alone. Something else they do is they corrupt the truth that God has revealed. We saw this in the garden. What did Satan do? He takes the words of God and he twists them so that Eve would then sin against God. And a third thing that we see demons doing is destroying what God has created. Demons hate God, they hate creation, they hate humanity, and they seek to destroy it. So, and I want to consider these three things and how we see them. Demons often take the form of false gods seeking to entice humanity to worship them rather than the one true God. They seek to replace God. That is what they want to do. Satan has been called the ape of God because he tries to do the things that God does and receive that which is due to God alone. We see this all the way back even with the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, and I'll just read it, you don't need to turn there, God charges the Israelites with going after false gods. He says that they made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, which were not God, to gods which they had not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So who are these gods that the Israelites are sacrificing to? Well, they're demons. They're no gods at all. They take the form of gods. They uh, reveal themselves as gods. They receive worship, but in reality, they are simply demons. The idolatry of Israel even when they created the golden calf and, and said it represented God, was said to be demon worship. We recognize that there are no other gods besides God, yet demons often will try to take the form of a god and receive worship that is due to God alone. The Apostle Paul likewise says this to the Corinthian church. He says this, what do I mean? That the thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So false worship to false gods is demonic worship, and that's what demons want to do. They want to take the place of of God and will often do, do so. And we have to consider that Satan often appears as an angel of light. Something else demons like to do is they corrupt the truth. They corrupt the truth that God has revealed. It's notable that oftentimes when Jesus encountered demons during his ministry, those demons were in the synagogue, a place where the scriptures would be read and taught. 
the demons were likely there to take the opportunity that they had in the synagogue, a place where God's truth is read, to then twist and corrupt that truth. That's some of the very first demonic activity we see in creation, where Satan comes and he challenges the word of God as Eve had received it. Has God not said? Is one of the constant refrains of the demons. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says that the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. False teaching is the doctrine of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. That's what demons do. They twist what God has revealed. They come up with their own new teachings. James In uh, James chapter 3, he also describes wisdom that does not come from above as demonic. The wisdom that does not come from above, the wisdom that does not come from God is the wisdom of demons. So demons seek to replace God, they seek to corrupt the word of God, and they seek to destroy the creation of God. The third thing, they seek both the physical and the spiritual destruction of God's creation. And we see this with the man who is possessed by the legion of demons. Grant had us there this morning. Remember what this man would do. He would often cut himself. He would often attack those who came near him. When the demons were cast out, what did they do? Immediately, they asked permission to go into the herd of swine, and those herd of swine immediately jump off the cliff and drown themselves in the sea. Demons, we see in the Bible, possess a great amount of power. They are quite deadly. They are deceptive. They twist the truth, and they seek only to destroy. But while we recognize this, something else about demons we must recognize. While demons possess a great amount of power, it's important to recognize that they are completely subject to the sovereign will of God. While demons hate God with all their being, while demons actively work against him, demons cannot do anything that God does not ultimately allow them to do. And we see this, we see a picture of this in the book of Job, we see this in the, count, the encounter between God and Satan in Job chapter 1. And I'll just read it real quick. You don't have to turn there. Job chapter 1, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him? And his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and all his possessions have increased in the land? But now put forth your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So what does God say to Satan? You can go this far, but no further. And Satan could go no further. We see even in the accounts of the legion of demons that they could not depart from the man and enter the herd of swine without the permission of Jesus. They were begging Jesus not to cast them out of the region. They were begging him, send us into the herd of swine. They were imploring him 
to not command them to go away into the abyss. There was a herd of swine feeding on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit him to enter the swine, and he gave permission. The demons are completely subject to the sovereign will and power of God. We go back to our passage in the book of Acts. It so happens as the apostle Paul and his company were going to the place of prayer that a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, having a demon who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. And following after Paul, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. So we encounter a girl who is possessed by a demon, a spirit of uh, divination. And the language literally says that it is a a spirit of a python. And this is likely a reference to the Greek god Apollo, who was believed to be embodied in the form of a snake, a python. So a python uh, demon or god would be associated with Apollo. And remember, what's one one thing that demons do? Well, they pose themselves as false gods and receive worship that is due to God alone. It's believed that this spirit, uh, the people around this woman believed that this spirit uh, uh, caused this woman to tell the future. And it seems like uh, this was the situation with this girl. We see a demon attempting to replace God by taking attributes that only God has, right? Only God knows the future. Only God knows what's going to happen. But what do demons do? they will pose as God. And that's exactly what's happening with this demonic, uh, possess, demonically possessed woman. Upon encountering the apostle Paul and his company, she did something that's kind of strange to us, didn't she? So she goes up against Paul, and what's the expectation? The expectation would be, don't listen to these men. These men are telling falsehoods. These men are telling lies. But what actually happens when they encounter this demon-possessed woman? She cries out saying, these men are bond servants. These men are slaves of the most high God. And these men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. That's awfully confusing, isn't it? To a pagan audience, this might have seemed like a reference to the most high God. As if uh, this might have been a reference to Zeus or something like that. Uh, But it's more likely that... um, you know, this demon you know, was telling the truth, right? The demon's telling the truth because that's exactly who the Apostle Paul are. But what's she doing as she is telling the truth? This is really similar to what would happen when demons would come across Jesus. What would happen when a demon would get close to Jesus? They would cry out, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. And Jesus would command them to be quiet. So why is Paul annoyed by this woman crying out that these men are servants of the Most High God? Well, just as Jesus didn't want publicity from the servants of Satan, Paul likely didn't want that same publicity from the servants of Satan. Right? Have you ever heard the expression, all press is good press? Right? If there's a movie coming out and then someone writes a really bad review about how horrible it is and, and things like that, people will say, oh man, I need to see this for myself. All press is good press, right? Well, that's not always the case. Uh, we recognize that the gospel message can be damaged by those who are proclaiming it. There's a truth behind that, right? This girl was under the influence of a demon and proclaimed to receive the truth 
from false gods. Her endorsement would ultimately undermine the credibility of the message proclaimed by Paul. There are some people you do not want to have their signature of endorsement, right? What's one of the things, again, not to get, not to get political, but what's one of the things that people would charge uh, the former president with? Oh, he got the endorsement from the KKK. You don't want that. That doesn't look good on you, does it? So not all endorsement is good, and you certainly don't want the endorsement of a demon. With this in mind, we can see that this demon, while proclaiming the truth, is likely uh, working in an attempt to twist the truth, right? The Apostle Paul is proclaiming the truth, the way of salvation, and here we have someone who knows to be uh, working for a false god, uh, has a demon, and now she's saying, oh, you better come along and listen to them. You don't want a serial liar coming and then affirming the true things that you're saying. That's not going to help you out very much. So she continued this practice for many days, and this greatly disturbed the Apostle Paul. So day after day, they're going by, and here she is crying out, these men are proclaiming the way of salvation. These men are servants of the Most High God. And then finally, uh, we get to verse 18. After many days, Paul became greatly annoyed. And he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very minute. This uh, goes back to the thing that I talked about, the reality that Jesus has absolute authority even over the demonic powers. Just as Jesus has the authority over demonic powers, we see that the apostles, those who are commissioned by Jesus to carry the message of Jesus, have that very same authority delegated to them. Some to recognize and consider and remember, it's not Paul in and of himself who has any power, right? Just as Peter, Peter, when we looked at him raising the lady from the dead earlier on, Peter has no power to do that in and of himself. He has no power to cause the lame to walk. He has no power to raise the dead. The Apostle Paul in and of himself has no power. But what does he do? He appeals to the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who he is a servant of, the one who he is directly commissioned by, I command you to come out of her. And what happened? Immediately, the demon departed from her immediately the demon departs from her. And that's the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament, right? Uh, oftentimes when we think of exorcisms, our, we're more informed by horror movies than we are the Bible, right? We often think an exorcism, oh, it requires all kinds of things, you know? You're going to have to hang a whole bunch of crosses on the wall. We're going to need to find some holy water and uh, we're going to have to find, we're going to have to read out of a Latin Bible because that scares demons the most. And then there's going to be this great big massive fight. The demonically possessed person's going to float up from the bed and we're going to have to try to restrain her. Things are going to be flying all around the room. And then finally, after this great big long endeavor, the demon leaves. Well, that's not what we see in scripture. When Jesus commands a demon to depart from someone, they leave. When the servants of Christ command a demon to come out of someone, it leaves because Christ has absolute authority over the demons. And we see that's exactly what happens in this case. Immediately, the demon departs from her. And this would be good news. This would certainly be good news for this slave girl. She likely would uh, go on and become part of the church. But this was not good news for her masters who were making money off of her. 
We read in verse, uh, starting in verse 19, when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the authorities. And they brought them to the chief magistrates and said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and they're proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. So the demon being cast out would be good news, but it was not good news for those who are making money off of her. False religions, especially very lucrative false religions, which many of them are, hate being exposed because such exposure cuts off their source of income. Why were people so mad at Martin Luther when he posted the 95 Theses to the door? Because they had a big golden church to build and they needed German money to do it. <laughs> That's just the reality. And we see here that there's similar outrage from these slave masters dragging Paul and Silas before the authorities who sat in the judgment seat. And what are the charges they bring up against them? They're throwing the city into confusion. They're proclaiming customs which are unlawful for Roman citizens. And there could have been legitimacy to this, right? A call to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is a call to abandon idolatry, which would have been customary for a Roman city. But remember what the real reason for their outrage was. They lost their source of income. And that wasn't a legitimate enough excuse for the authorities, so they had to come up with something quick. This was likely an excuse to have them punished for taking away that source of profit. And the chief magistrates then condemn this immediately. A crowd rises up, the magistrates tear their robes, they're both found guilty in the court of law and in the court of public opinion, and they're beaten and they're thrown into jail. The apostles are beaten, they're imprisoned, and this is very similar to what happened to Jesus. Was Jesus uh, tried legitimately, right? And we see this pattern also throughout the book of Acts. Their condemnation is not at all, uh, not entirely different from the condemnation of Jesus. Both were brought before the rulers on trumped-up charges. Why did they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate? Ah, well, he's stirring up uh, division in the city. He's telling us to do things that Caesar would disapprove of. Well, that's not really why they had him there. Both had the pressure of an angry crowd against them, and then neither of them had a fair trial. The trial of Jesus, they'd already determined the verdict before they uh, had sat down. And Paul and Silas didn't even receive a trial. The apostles are then beaten, and they're imprisoned. And then we get to verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, let's go back how would you react if this would happen? What would you do if a police officer burst through the door, grabbed you out of your seat, beat you uh, into his car, and then took you down to lock up and threw you in there? I wouldn't feel very good about that. I'd say, hey, get me a lawyer so I can burn this police department to the ground, right? Uh, but that's not the reaction we see from Paul and Silas. They're in jail. Right? They don't know what the future holds them, and yet here they are singing praise to God. It's amazing that we see, when we see the disciples mistreated, that they do not react as we might expect, but they offer praise to God even in their bad situation. 
And this is the exact same reaction that Peter and John had had after they were beaten for the sake of the gospel. They walked away rejoicing because of what had happened. Despite everything that had happened to them, right? They do a good thing and get nothing but bad in return. And yet they're singing praise to God. And as Christians, we can learn something from this. We can recognize that wherever we find ourselves, we are not outside of God's providence, right? We are not outside of God's will. The words of Joseph come to mind. Remember what happened to Joseph. It wasn't completely different, where he is taken by his brother, sold into slavery. It goes from bad to worse. He's accused of a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison, And what did he say when he encountered the men who were responsible for that? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that is something that we too can say wherever we find ourselves. What you mean for evil, God ultimately means for good. The actions of the demon that led to this were evil. The reaction of her masters was evil. The actions of the crowd were evil. The actions of the magistrates were evil. The actions of the jailer that they were handed to was evil. And yet Paul and Silas are still able to rejoice and sing praise to God. And this is because Paul knows a truth that we all should be reminded of. The truth that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And something else to notice about this passage, this verse. They're singing hymns of praise to God and they're praying. And it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. And that's going to come into play in just a minute. But then we go on and we see a miraculous release. Verse 26, and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken Immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And this reminds you of what happened to Peter. What happened when Peter found himself in jail? Well, an angel came and released him, let him go. And here we see something similar. There's an earthquake and immediately all the doors open, all the chains fall off. No doubt that this is a miracle. We might expect Paul and Silas to use this opportunity to escape. And that's exactly what the guard suspected, right? The jailer woke up, he saw the doors were opened, and what's his response? Well, he pulls out a sword to kill himself. And and we need to understand something about uh, the the Roman culture then. Roman Roman guards, uh, Roman soldiers, if they did not uh, carry out their duties, then the penalty was death. If they allowed a prisoner to go free, the penalty was death. We saw this even earlier on in the book of Acts. What happened after Peter escaped? And Herod questions all the guards. How did he get out? We have no clue. He was chained between us. The doors were completely locked. There were guards outside. There were all kinds of gates he had to get through. We don't know how he got out. He's questioning them all. And immediately after questioning, they are put to death. So what does this guard see when it appears the entire prison is cleared out. He says, well, either by my own hand or after the the misery of a, a trial and questioning, so he pulls out his sword to kill himself. And we notice something else in verse, tw- uh, verse 28. But Paul cries out with a loud voice, 
Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, whether he saw the jailer with the sword or he knew intuitively this would have been his response, he cries out. And something else to notice. Paul doesn't say, don't worry, Silas and I are still here. He says, we're all still here. You think those prisoners were listening to those prayers and hymns and saw this hope that the Apostle Paul and that Silas had within them? I think there's something to that. So the guard immediately puts his sword away. He grabs a light. He, bring, he goes before Paul and Silas and he falls down before them. And here's the most important question that this guard has ever asked in his entire life. What must I do to be saved? What's he asking? He's not asking, how do I avoid the death penalty for what has happened here? He's already avoided death. But he's asking something deeper. This goes beyond just physical salvation from death at the hand of the Romans. He's asking, how do I be delivered from the wrath of God that is due to me? This man, well, this is a universal dilemma that this man faces, and it just became real to him, right? This is something, the question that this man asked is the question that all religions of the world try to answer. How do we escape from the wrath of God? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. We all know intuitively that the wrath of God is against us because of the sins that we've committed. Why is it that the world is so afraid of death? Because intuitively, they know they're going to have to stand before a holy God. Here, the jailer just saw the power of God on display. And he recognized that he had been working against him by holding the servants of God captive. It's not just that he knew that he was a sinner. No, we, everyone will admit, oh yeah, sure, I'm a sinner. This jailer recognized God is there and I have been acting as an agent against him. I am an enemy of God. And I face the wrath of this God. That's the human condition. No one is born innocent. No one is born pure. As much as I love James and Evelyn, they're still sons, they're still sons and daughters of their father. Not just me, their father, but Adam. They received the very nature that Adam had, that rebellious, sinful nature that is antagonistic against God. That is the universal dilemma How do I escape the wrath of God? What must I do to be saved? And here, in verse 31, we have the glorious answer to that question. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. How can anyone escape the wrath of God? Well, the world religions offer up all kinds of answers. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, prayers, good deeds, Make yourself good enough and then maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. No, the answer is not found in there. The answer is only found in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the good news of his life, 
his death and his resurrection from the dead and that this has purchased eternal life for all who believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and includes the confession that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is judge. He is the one who stands ready to forgive. He is the one who ungodly men can turn to. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preacher, says this about faith. And I like to steal from him because I only steal from the best. Faith, faith is the hand that receives what God presents to us. And hence, it is a simple, childlike thing. When a child has an apple offered to him, the child may know nothing about the orchard which the apple grew. He may know nothing of the mechanism from his hand and his arm, but it is quite enough for him to take the apple. Faith does the most effectual thing for the soul when it, ta- when it takes what God gives. When God holds out to me salvation by Christ Jesus, I do not need to ask anything further about it, but take it to myself and at once be saved. For by faith, the Spirit of God is received. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It goes on, and we see that they spoke the word of the Lord together with him and all who were in the house, right? How does he call on the Lord? Well, he needs to know who he is, certainly. Uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul says to the book of Romans that uh, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And there's no distinction for the Jew or the Greek. The offer of salvation is open to all. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for those who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then the question is, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. They explain the things of the Lord to this man. And he only needs to reach out, grab it by faith, and salvation belongs to him. We can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one, through his sacrificial death on the cross, has borne the wrath of God in our place. Whatever wrath is due to us for our sin is taken on by Jesus. And that is why, through faith, this Roman jailer, who mere minutes before found himself as an enemy of God, can now be counted as a child of God. Not because he all of of a sudden became a better man, not because he all of a sudden did the right thing. Notice the Apostle Paul doesn't say, okay, well, uh, our church meets here at this time and you can begin your catechism uh, catechism classes and uh, maybe after a few months uh, the, the elders will quiz you and then we'll be able to figure out. no. He offers the Lord Jesus to him, he receives it. And yes, of course, he's going to go on and learn all about these things. But by simply clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, this man receives eternal life. And this promise of eternal life is not only for the jailer, but his household can also lay claims to these promises through faith as well. The good news isn't limited to a select few, but the entire household is called to faith in the good news. 
And we see the results of this in verse 33. And he took him that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And we're running out of time. Just four things. We see four major changes as a result of this saving faith. We see that he has a changed relationship with Paul, a changed relationship with God's people. Rather than keeping the prisoners in jail, he takes them under his own roof, feeding them and washing their wounds. We see that he's identified with Christ through baptism. Immediately, he and his family are baptized, showing their identity with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This isn't something that they wait on. Just as the Ethiopian eunuch, upon hearing the gospel proclaimed from Isaiah, says, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents this man from being baptized? Nothing. And we see that there is baptism immediately. We see that the family follows the faith of their father. This is a, a key thing, I think, that we can sometimes overlook. Not only does the jailer believe, but his family follows him. And this is huge, especially in a society that is at war with the biblical family structure of households being led by the husband and father. We see the great blessing that it is on an entire family when the head of that household, the father, comes to faith. He is in a great position to lead his family into that faith as well. And four, we see that they are rejoicing, greatly rejoicing having believed in God with his whole household. They have eternal life. They're delivered from their sins, adopted as God's children, and have become part of the family of faith. And there is nothing worth rejoicing more than when someone believes in the gospel. Even the angels, as Jesus said, when a sinner repents and turns, even the angels celebrate in heaven. What an amazing truth. What an amazing thing that we see here. Now, just finishing up the last few verses. Now, when the day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported the words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come now and go in peace. So the chief magistrates, uh, either they thought that that punishment was sufficient or what had happened got far enough down the line and someone said, Ooh, We messed up here. Uh, They send to have the men released. But Paul doesn't want to go that quickly. Paul said to them, They've beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The Apostle Paul reacts this with indignation at their mistreatment. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, which gave them protection in the Roman Empire against such treatment. As a Roman citizen, you most certainly could not be taken and punished without there being a trial. That's something that we can all enjoy in the United States. Like I said, how would you feel about being thrown into jail? Well, certainly we can rejoice in that, but at the same time, it wouldn't stop us from saying, all right, I want to see some, uh, at least some apologies. I was about to say heads on a platter, but I won't go that far. Uh, I need to see some apologies from these officers who have mistreated us, who have just thrown the rule of law out the window and treated us in this way. And that's what Paul is doing. 
So uh, Paul demands that these magistrates who wrongly accused and punished them come and give an apology. And this would not only vindicate Paul and Silas, but this apology, this public apology, would also give protection to the church. Remember, what was the charge that they were well, that was brought against them? Oh, they're coming and teaching strange things that we as Romans can't believe. And Paul is saying, we can't let that slide. You need to come and apologize for beating us on this basis, right? And what will this do? Well, that will give protection to the church there in, uh, there in Philippi to continue teaching those things, right? Uh, after that scandal, and that would have been a very public scandal, they probably don't want another one of those on their hands. So uh, part of this was, uh, because part of the charge was against their teaching, the apology for the wrongful treatment would give the new church some protection against further persecution. And we continue reading on. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, and they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Please, I don't want any further details. Don't, don't take this any further than uh, we want it to go. Just leave us alone. And they went out of the prison. They entered the house of Lydia. They saw the brethren there, and they encouraged them and departed. And once again, we see this exact pattern earlier on in the book of Acts. What do Peter and John do? They immediately go to the brethren. They're immediately encouraged by these things that had taken place. And then Paul and Silas and likely Timothy depart. So uh, that is all we have time for, but a number of great things that we learn here, but the, the greatest, first of all, the greatest thing that there is here, what is the most important question that we all must ask? What must I do to be saved? And what is the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The guarantee of salvation because of what Christ has done, the one who was offered as a propitiation for sins so that I can stand as justified before God as if I had never sinned because the wrath that was due to me was laid on Christ and the perfect righteousness of his life is given to me and it is all through faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful to see your hand working in all things in the dealings with the Apostle Paul and these Philippian officials, we see that it is your story that is being played out. And we recognize that that story has not yet ended, that we are still part of your story, that your hand is working in our lives and in our hearts. We thank you for your grace and all these things. And we're thankful for the great truth that salvation is in Jesus Christ, that it has been purchased for us on the cross, and that we only need to reach out through faith and receive it, just as this jailer did. I pray that if there is anyone in here who is not counted among your children, that they would do so just now, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the salvation that is in his name. I pray you bless the rest of our day and week. Give us courage as we go out into this world. Help us to see your hand at work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.